0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET.
1: This
2: is Detroit Today. We'll start with a discussion about the NFL and our local team, the Detroit Lions. What should we expect this season? The second heavily shaped by COVID. Then we're going to talk about the future of cities. A trend is seeing many people move away from Urban Course, and a new book discusses what cities must do to survive and thrive. We'll talk with the author next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Hey everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. So, NFL football is back here in Detroit. The season had a little bit of a rocky start. Yesterday, the Lions looked pretty bad for three quarters against the San Francisco 49ers. Despite finally coming alive in the fourth quarter, the Lions, of course, still lost 41-33. to Now, many of you who have listened to the show for some time know that I have had a complicated relationship with the NFL in the past for a number of reasons. I have been observing a boycott of the league uh, for several years, but uh, for many reasons, it has kind of slipped away, and I've gotten way sloppier about uh, avoiding professional football than I have in the past. We can talk a little more about that later, but uh, I do want us to talk on this show about all of the storylines that come out of the NFL. The NFL, of course, is not just about football. It's not just about sports. It's about culture, and we learned in the last few years especially how much of Uh, Our culture gets expressed through the NFL and how often our cultural conflicts play out on the gridiron and in the locker rooms and in the front offices of our NFL teams. Uh, The state of our lackluster Lions and many of the other controversies surrounding the NFL are part of life here in Southeast Michigan. And so we always want to take a moment every once in a while to take a look at what's going on with the Lions, with the NFL, with culture, and the way it interacts with both. So to unpack some of those things, we'd like to welcome back a friend of the show who joins us often to talk about sports and culture, Detroit News sports columnist, John Neo. John, welcome back to Detroit Today.
0: Thanks for having me, Stephen. Good to be with you.
2: So first, let's talk about the Lions yesterday. And so they brought you back in. <laughs> they did. They have right? suckered me back <laughs> in with a number of compelling storylines, including sure. this young quarterback who they have traded Matthew Stafford for. Jared Goff comes to us from the Los Angeles Rams, but also the new coach and the promise of a new day. We've seen this all before here in Detroit. <laughs> uh, how new of a day was it yesterday?
0: Well, it was a long day. That game felt like it took an eternity, um, in part because it did. Yeah, it was a tale of almost three games is what it felt like. <laughs> no, it was. You're right. It was, um, I mean, first off, the new part was the old part, which was there were fans back in the building, mm-hmm. and there was, you know, 60,000 Screaming Lions fans, actually, probably 50,000 Screaming Lions fans and 10,000 10, Screaming 49ers fans back in the building. So it, it felt more like, you know the scene we all have come to know uh, with professional sports and college sports as well. Um, Just a packed building and, you know, sort of an electricity that goes along with that. And you're right. It's a new regime, new front office, new coaching staff, largely a new roster. Nearly half the faces weren't here a year ago, Um, but it was also, it was an odd scene for I think for most Lions fans because they watched their Lions in the afternoon And then they watched the quarterback they've been spending the last more than a decade watching uh, at night on national TV winning a game against the Bears. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a a strange day all the way around. uh, And it was a strange game because it started off terribly like we've come to expect from the Lions. And then it ended with this crazy finish that almost left everyone happy.
2: Sure. And those last few minutes where the team looked... Sharper And more sure. determined and more exact in the way that it was playing football. I, I, how much of that is what this team really is or could be? And how much of it was just that uh, San Francisco, perhaps in the last few minutes, was not, uh, was not playing its best football anymore and, and not that worried?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's probably all of the above. And certainly we've seen our share of comebacks over the years that that came up short
2: um, with the Lions.
0: But um, this one was important, I think, in that look. everyone, including probably the Lions coaches and ownership and everybody in that locker room, although they can't afford to admit it, knows this is not going to be a a very successful season in terms of wins and losses. But it was important because it is a new team and a new coaching staff that that they – that they did fight to the end and we've heard a lot this off season about sort of this different vibe and certainly a a better relationship between the coaches and players and guys, you know, really wanting to buy in, um, to see that then at the end where they didn't give up and nobody just kind of rolled over, which we certainly saw a lot of last year, um, I think it was important. In the end, it doesn't matter. You're still 0-1-1. But um, I think for Lions fans, I think that was at least a little bit encouraging to see something there at the end. Mm -hmm. Although it was interesting because most of the Lions fans had headed to the parking garage and back to the tailgates (laughs) and et cetera. So there was probably a a pretty even split of 49ers and Lions fans left in the building. But those who stayed actually got a little entertainment.
2: They got a little bit of a show, yeah. So I I want to pull the lens back a little now and talk – about the league and the way in which the league is being affected by COVID and then also how it's interacting with other cultural phenomenon. Uh, let's start with, with COVID, and I want to start with a specific uh, storyline. Quarterback Cam Newton, who is a former uh-huh. league MVP and team captain, was recently released by the New England Patriots. And some people have speculated that uh, his refusal to say whether or not he's vaccinated – is the reason that he got cut. Uh, sports writer Jamel Hill wrote in The Atlantic that teams have good reason to cut players or refuse to sign them if they are either unvaccinated or cagey about their vaccine status. So w- what do we make of, of where that leaves the league right now? That's a very high-profile player uh, to take that kind of action against. Is the league sending a message here?
0: Oh, for sure. They're sending messages, and they've sent it in, in about as many ways as they felt like they could legally and otherwise uh, this offseason. With the protocols they put in, obviously, last year was a different animal. Um, it was a completely uncharted territory for all these pro sports leagues. So the protocols that were put in place, you know, it was, it was, it was about as strict as you could get and still attempt to play a season. Uh, this year, obviously, with vaccinations, they've put in all sorts of incentives, if you want to call them that, for these players to 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 go ahead and get vaccinated and follow the science, et cetera, um, because they've made it, they've come out and said essentially, your life's going to be pretty miserable and it's not going to be easy to do your job unless you're vaccinated. It's not a mandate, but it's you know probably one step shy of that from the league's perspective. And so they they've done that, and and you know most teams are at ninety plus percent, I think, you know eighty percent or more of players vaccinated, which is certainly greater than the average, you know, the general population in this country. But, um but then you've also had some coach, I mean, Urban Meyer, the new coach at the Jacksonville Jaguars, really said the quiet part out loud, essentially saying that, yeah, it's going to be a tiebreaker, you know, uh in terms of roster cuts and things like that. And obviously the, you know, the union doesn't want to hear that. And, and certainly the league probably didn't want to hear him say that either, but that's been the, essentially the, the reality. And so these players, you know, the Lions certainly had a few players that talked about, you know what, I wasn't going to get it, but I went ahead and did it because I felt like I needed to just to do my job. And um, we're certainly seeing that. We've had some outbreaks on teams in the preseason and and training camp that showed how problematic it's going to be for teams if something does happen. It's not the same as last year in terms of the testing and the protocols and, and guys being taken out of commission by a positive test or close contacts, but um, it is still going to be difficult uh, for teams if there is a case or two or three mm-hmm. in your locker room. And so they've made it clear to teams that you got to do whatever you can to, to, to keep this from happening. Cause we're not going to have rescheduled games and, you know, delayed games or kickoffs. We're going to have forfeits if, if teams suddenly have an outbreak and can't play.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm talking with John Neo. He's a sports columnist for the Detroit News. And we're talking about the new NFL season, which we saw our Detroit Lions venture into yesterday against the San Francisco 49ers, an unsuccessful effort. Ultimately, but we did see flashes of a team that could give us some excitement over the next four months. We're talking also about the impact on the NFL and on fans of things like COVID-19, which is, of course, still with all of us and affecting all of our lives, that it will affect uh, football this year the way uh, it is affecting everything else, just like it affected football last year as well. Uh, We're also going to talk about some of the other cultural controversies that are playing out in the context of football and the NFL. I want to hear from you as well. Uh, are you watching the Lions or the NFL this season? What interests you about the league or our team this year? Uh, also, let me know if you would go to an NFL game at this point. Uh, would you go to a stadium uh, because of the pandemic, uh, maybe not uh, choosing to do something like that? Uh, also, give us your predictions for the NFL this year, and especially for our Detroit Lions. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter at hashtag DetroitToday, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to listeners, John, I want to talk about uh, the – the issues of race and racial justice in the context of, of the NFL; those were two of the of the things that led me to begin boycotting the league uh, a few a few years back. I think the the reaction to players kneeling, for instance, was something that I just really uh, didn't care for the way the owners handled that. It, it, that issue seems to be playing out a little differently now, I guess, in the NFL. Uh, and perhaps we're starting to see change. I'm not certainly um, suggesting that, that this is not an issue uh, in the NFL or anywhere else, but that perhaps it looks a little different now than it did a few years ago.
0: I, I think it's it's not quite as um, jarring, perhaps, for for fans and for owners, et cetera. There, obviously, there's a different president in the White House, and so there's different sort of uh, – um, you know the, the the motivations and rationales that some of these NFL owners have change depending on the pressure they're receiving from that bully pulpit. But um, but you you do. I mean, we saw in the stadium yesterday. Uh, There's slogan stencil in both end zones. Uh, it takes all of us in one end and to end racism in the other end zone. So it's it's still there it's still um visible if you will i think players are allowed to have uh and, you know the nfl uniforms were always viewed as these you know sancti- sanctified you know mm-hmm. spaces and mm-hmm. and they're allowing players to put decals on their helmets that i think there's a handful of of slogans that they can put these you know black lives matter inspire change et cetera. Um, so you're seeing some of that and you're seeing, I think we're not seeing the kneeling, um, nearly as much as we did a few years ago or even last year. Um, but players are doing their own things. Um, and certainly some of these teams have taken steps with, you know, financially, um, to support social justice causes the lines have done that in Detroit here. And, um, we'll continue to see that the league, I think is just, I think there's much less pressure being felt on all sides. Um, right now and obviously we're removed from the some last summer and and you know summer before this past summer with the George Floyd uh murder and so on so I think some time has passed in that regard as well.
2: Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's uh, start with Sean in River Rouge. Sean, welcome to the show.
1: Yes, thank you. Hi. How are you all? Good, how are you? Um I'm well. I was calling because I am actually an employee. I work at Fourfield uh, on the food of Everside. Mm-hmm. And yesterday was our first day back in over two years. So going in, I was initially nervous about, I didn't know if there would be a lot of people there, but it it was regular like normal. And there were absolutely no masks, so it kind of gave me pause. And I was kind of nervous about, that, even though I'm fully vaccinated, Mm. because it was wall-to-wall people, and no one had on a mask.
2: Mm. So, uh, you know, Sean, I I was also there uh, yesterday. It's the first time in many years, in fact, I'd gone to an NFL game, and I noticed also not a lot of people wearing masks. I was a little nervous about going. I did have a mask with me, and I tried to you know wear it as much as I could inside, uh, and even up in the concession areas, uh, where where people I thought seemed not to be wearing masks in in large numbers. Uh, Sean, can you tell me whether employees there are required to wear masks? Like, did you have to wear a mask the whole time? I couldn't I couldn't tell if all of the people working were wearing masks.
1: Have to, but then they changed the rule on. Uh September 2nd, so all
2: employees had to have, have to have masks on. You do have to have masks on, okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. So it's the fans who are not, uh, right, who are right, not right. doing it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I really appreciate the call and uh, the perspective there. Uh, John, th- this it, it seems to me the, the, the real risk that the league is taking, but, but it's not that different, I guess, from lots of other uh, institutions that are taking risks at this point by getting people together in – large groups, but it, it seems to me that the potential downside is that one of these games becomes a super spreader event or something like that, and then that damages the league's reputation, I would think, uh, and damages people's trust in in them to keep everyone safe. But but perhaps they're not all that worried about it.
0: Yeah, and it feel, I mean, obviously all of these things are taken in the context of the larger, you know, social atmosphere, and it feels like our society is ready to take that risk and take that step, especially now that, you know, half the population is vaccinated. But you're right. It's 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 an awkward um, and it's jarring. Um, and it's really a, a bit different. I was at Michigan Stadium on Saturday night for the first time, you know, with fans. I wasn't there for the opener two weeks ago. Um, and it, I was surprised just to take it all in. And you, that was 100 Eight thousand is what it was announced as. Mm-hmm. Now it's outdoors, um, and these college stadiums, by and large, are outdoors, so it feels a little bit different. I think fans probably feel a little bit differently about the risk that they're, they're, they're taking on um, by being outdoors uh, in a large crowd, as opposed to indoors in a large crowd. But I, you're right; um, it's something that the the NFL and all of these you know you know leagues are going to have to to grapple with, and how that how far do they go in sort of Um, requiring, whether it's, you know, proof of vaccination or a negative test. Um, Some colleges have gone that route. Some pro teams have gone that route. I don't think we're going to see too many more. But if things spike and continue to trend in a terrible way in terms of uh, of outbreaks and and so forth, you may see some more, you know, you know regulations being mm-hmm. put in place along those lines, but um it wasn't you know, and look, our life is different in the media. I mean, we were back in not in locker rooms but in press conference settings and media rooms now we we are required, you know, I'm vaccinated, everyone I know in the media corps is vaccinated, and so we're but we're tested um, to have access to players in that outdoor setting, even we're tested uh, weekly um just in case things move indoors and we're indoors to watch practice so th- those kinds of things are in place uh, at our level but you know in the in the larger you know 60,000 people all screaming drinking et cetera. yeah it's this is this is what we were afraid of i guess and many of us you know a year ago and now it's a question of are you are you more comfortable because you're vaccinated and i think most people i'm I'm surprised at how big the crowds have been at Some of these places, to be honest, mm. I, I thought it might be take bands longer to come back mm. in full force. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. You there, Gene?
1: Oh, uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, how are,
2: One
0: are you? The problem
1: with the Lions is uh, not the players or the
0: coaches, it's the owners. As long as they can sucker us in with a certain level of mediocrity, <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll just keep doing it.
2: Are you calling us suckers, Gene? Like are, we, are we all suckers? <laughs> I believe he's calling you a
0: sucker, Stephen. And, and I've, I mean, look, he's to a ex- certain extent, he's, certainly he's right. I mean, this is, you know, the NFL is a cash cow, uh, it's a business that can print money because, yes, if you put that product, there's only 32 teams you put that product on the field and get 60,000 people in the door, it's, you know, the incentive to win is, is, you know, purely um, internal. It's not a uh, financial, if you will. So, mm-hmm. um, but it is a new owner. I, I will say this, about it's, it, it's the same family name, but it's uh, Sheila Ford Hamp is, has taken over in the last year. And this is, they are trying something different, whether the fans, want to believe it or not i certainly understand not um but they are trying something different with a sort of a total rebuild and you know they're borrowing a page from the other pro sports teams in this town but with a new front office and a new coaching staff all at once trying to build this the right way they say and doing it in sort of a, a collaborative way that certainly wasn't the case with the last coaching staff in, mm-hmm. and front office regime um it is new now whether it's going to work or not and how long it's going to take and how much patience fans might have for that it is another matter and i totally get it because you've seen 60 plus years of one playoff win so this is not this is not new until it's different
2: hmm. how about that yeah yeah okay uh, john neo the sports columnist for the detroit news it's always great Have you here? Actually, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to react to something slightly off topic here. Ben Wallace was inducted uh, into the Basketball Hall of Fame over the weekend and gave a really interesting and moving speech. This is a guy, though, who always has, I think, thrown curveballs at us as Detroiters, as us as fans at us as Americans. Uh, But his speech was very much, I thought, uh, in in the style of what we've come to expect from uh, Ben Wallace, which is to expect the unexpected.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, he uh, he was strangely one of the most popular Detroit athletes and a guy who just sort of came out of nowhere to be one of those. It was, You know, there were no expectations when he showed up here after a trade. Mm-hmm. And and he became sort of the embodiment of certainly of the Pistons in that last championship they had. But, but really, this town, I mean, the, if you think back to what, 15, 20 years ago, I mean, the kids showing up, you know, everybody would fear the fro and everything else, but he was just this blue – I mean, he certainly epitomized the blue-collar work ethic, the defense, the – the no frills approach to the way he played, but just his story in general, I mean, he comes from abject poverty Mm and, uh, and became a superstar in the league and now a hall of famer, um, just by sheer will. Um, and I, you know, I think fans just embraced his genuineness. Uh, and it came through again this weekend, just watching him there with, as he's going into the hall of fame, it was pretty impressive. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, Thanks, as always, for joining us, John. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to switch subjects. We're going to hear from author David Cutler about his new book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, a real look at what's happening to change cities and what they must do to adapt to survive and thrive in the future. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
3: Bringing you news that matters. Stories that
2: impact your life.
1: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.
2: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Throughout the last year and a half, there have been a lot of things under the microscope, things and ways of living that had long been taken for granted and that we never really questioned. One of those things is cities, the great urban landscapes that many of us call home. Cities are perhaps one of humanity's greatest inventions. They are hubs for creativity, innovation, wealth, And, of course, for connection. However, as the global COVID crisis has redefined our relationship to cities, what does the future of urbanism look like? We've seen our own downtown here in Detroit adapt to much smaller crowds with more people working from home. And even our happy hours and socializing have adapted and taken on really different forms. Last year, we all heard about the so-called great migration of people away from cities and out into exurbs and smaller towns as people took full advantage of the geographic flexibility afforded to a lot of us through the emergence of remote work. We've also seen in the latest census numbers an increase, at least here in southeast Michigan, in the leaving of Detroit and the growth of our suburbs. And that growth looks different today than it did 20 or 30 years ago. We are now at a point, for instance, in Southeast Michigan, where there are more African Americans living outside the city of Detroit than inside the city of Detroit. It's a little asterisk in the census numbers. that hasn't gotten a whole lot of discussion, but that I think is a significant marker of change. So the question is, how permanent are these changes? And are we on the brink of a really different world in which urban centers are not the center of life that they have been for so much of our country's history? My next guest joins me to contemplate all these questions and many of the other ideas that are laid out in his new book. David Cutler is the Otto Eckstein Professor of Applied Economics in the Department of Economics, at Harvard University. And he's the co-author of the newly released book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, it's a great pleasure to be with you. So I'm curious, how, how long have you been thinking about this reality, about the changing landscape of our cities? When
3: did this kind of first get your attention? You know, it has been for uh, quite a while, and then COVID sped it up. But, of course, even before COVID, we were having debates about police brutality in city after city. There were fights about gentrification battles, particularly on the West Coast, where housing supply is very restricted and demand was very high. But even in Boston and uh, uh, other places on the East Coast and through the Midwest, We've had issues of schools that were not providing the education to all the students that they ought to. So those were all kind of festering issues for cities. And then what COVID did, as you were saying, is it really brought them front and center because people said, you know, if the city isn't working for me, maybe I can just go elsewhere. Or maybe as a whole as a whole business, we should move out to the suburbs or somewhere else or to a different state. So it's it sort of Made us look at the situation differently and say, you know, maybe we ought to um, reevaluate the whole structure of society. And that's, I think, um, some of what's happening now is is we're saying, what do we what what will society look like, and what do we want it to look like, if and when we get a handle on COVID. Hmm. Hmm. So
2: um, let's start with with COVID, and then I guess maybe back to the larger discussion of what was happening to cities for quite a while before uh, the pandemic. Uh, as I said in the open, you can't come to a city like Detroit and not notice the dramatic difference uh, between uh, pre-COVID activity and uh, and I don't want to say post-COVID because we're not quite through all of it yet, but certainly Uh, you know, a year and a half in, we are dealing with it uh, quite differently. But our cities don't seem to be teeming with quite the level of activity as they were before. Uh, In August, uh, early August, I was in Chicago for the first time in in a few years. uh, And I was there on a weekday. And I remember walking out literally onto Michigan Avenue at about 830 in the morning, a place that I used to work. Uh, some 30 years ago, and I remember how busy it was, how difficult it was to just navigate the sidewalks. Uh, you could have shot a cannon uh, in the in the sort of cliched uh, sense uh, down Michigan Avenue that morning and not hit a whole lot of people. So it's not just Detroit. It's, I think it's everywhere. But let's talk about how not just dramatic that is, but how permanent it may be and how it may require those of us who live in and love cities to really think differently about what the future looks like.
3: Yeah, it really is. So, and, and, you know, cities were just getting going again and then Delta, the Delta variant happened. Um, It's so, so you can imagine what happens. People are, some people are certainly leaving cities, although on net, there's still a flow into them, but you could, but what, what, will happen for some people is that they'll say, you know, people living in the suburbs who have been commuting into cities, they'll say, you know, I don't need this. I think I'll, I'll look for a job out in the suburbs or maybe the whole business will move. And so that will be the, the, the first order um, thing. For some cities, that can be catastrophic. So if it's a big firm that says, you know, I don't need to be in the downtown or I don't even need to be in this city at all. My employees are scattered all over. Why don't I think about where I want to go? So for some cities, that could absolutely be catastrophic. For other cities, it actually creates an opportunity because there are at least two kinds of things that one can do instead. One is many cities are looking for space for kind of scrappy startups, you know, and they've been priced out Mm -hmm. by big firms that, you know, big established firms that are using a lot of space. Like here in Boston, we had a sort of innovation district that, you know, almost got taken over by big firms Uh, until we said, you know, put size limits on things. So so it's possible we can have more startups that way. And then the other possibility is that um, some business can be turned into housing, particularly, you know, not suburban housing, but that's not what everyone wants. So some people want, particularly younger people, want a smaller footprint where that's near a lot of things and near restaurants and so on. And so I would expect that some cities will transform themselves that way into being more of a kind of younger, it, younger spot than a than a sort of older um, suburban spot. Mm. That will be okay. Each of those would be fine. So it, you know, and and you know, we we need to find housing for people, and we need to be able to. Um, Uh, to, To create space for startup businesses. The worry is going to be cities, and Detroit is an example of them, cities where you may not have that capacity always at the ready. And so the movement out could create a lot of problems before you have a chance to fix them. And so those are the kinds of cities that are going to have to pay the most attention is the the, you know, what what do I do if a big employer moves out or if people who are paying a lot of taxes move out and then my tax base falls a lot? And so th- those are going to be the hardest issues that cities are going to have to deal with. Hmm. And as we deal with those issues,
2: I mean, the, the, there is a, a sense of urgency and almost crisis in some places. Detroit, I think, is is one of them where I think the instinct is to, is to try to reimagine things very quickly. Uh, is that the wrong instinct to follow? And I guess that kind of gets us to not just COVID, but the broader picture here where cities were changing anyway, and there were things that we probably needed to be doing. So are we right to have just a little sense of panic about all of this?
3: I think we need to proceed with a sense of urgency about it. Um, Issues. So, some of the issues that cities will need to address are unrelated to COVID, but they've been brought into the fore by COVID. So, for example, things like police brutality issues, where we, where you know, the, where those are going on, you have the city no longer becomes as nice an environment for everyone, and that is a bad thing, particularly if people are feeling footloose, as we were talking about.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, I think that cities are going to have to address some of those relatively rapidly similarly um, it's not going to be as rapid a fix but things like education policy where making schools work for everybody and not just for <clears throat> maybe higher achieving kids or um, uh, kids who have who have the backgrounds that can uh, do well so that's not going to be as quick a fix but those are things that can uh, that can absolutely uh, happen I think other things are going to require much more thought so for example, One of the things that we've learned is that a city is really only as healthy as the least healthy people in it.
1: Hmm.
3: So, you know, here in Boston, um, we have areas of the city that are very healthy and areas that are less healthy. And areas that are less healthy are much more exposed to COVID and COVID uh, rates are higher and hospitalizations are higher. And that then affects everyone because then everybody says, well, I'm not sure I can go on the T or the buses or into crowded spaces and so you wind up affecting the entire the entirety of the area, not just some areas. And so we're going to have to address the fact that the that cities are going to depend on the, the health of everyone is going to be important in the in the future cities, not just you know, what what not not just I care about only what's happening in my area. That's going to be – you can't do that on a dime, but we're ha- going to have to start working on that. So we're going to have to say, what is it that we can do to affect the least healthy and the least well-off uh, areas and people so that we can all manage to stay healthy?
2: Hmm. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, David Cutler uh, of Harvard University, author of the new book, Survival of the City Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. I want to hear from you as well. What do you think of the changing city, the changing city that we live in here in Detroit, uh, the changing city that we are challenged by right now? How did the pandemic? Change the way that you think of Detroit, whether you call it home or not? Uh, How did it change your perception of other cities or of urbanism generally? Uh, Do you go downtown less? Uh, Have you started finding yourself gravitating back to some of the suburban places uh, rather than urban centers? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is David Cutler. He's a a professor of applied economics at Harvard University and co-author of the newly released book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Uh, We are talking about the future of cities, the future of our city here in Detroit and the way it's being changed, not only by COVID, uh, but by several other trends that have been at work for a really long time, and what we ought to be doing to try to adapt to those changes. How should Detroit change to not just survive, but to thrive? And, of course, as always on this program, we are talking about how that question plays out for people uh, of different means, of different backgrounds. Uh, All of these questions look really different depending uh, on the wealth that you have, In many cases, depending on your ethnic background or your religion, we see that play out in Detroit an awful lot. We see it play out in migration patterns, in growth and decline, all of those things. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Colin, tell us how you're thinking of the city, our city right now. Uh, Are you thinking uh, that you might stay away from it more than you did before? Are you someone who worked in downtown Detroit who now is able to work remotely and therefore you're not coming down nearly as much, if at all? Uh, also, are you somebody who has moved to Detroit, into the city uh, at some point recently, or has moved away from the city? Uh, the, the, the census results that we are pouring over right now have a very interesting wrinkle in them, in that uh, for the first time in uh, perhaps all of history here in Southeast Michigan, uh, there are more African Americans living outside the city of Detroit than inside the city of Detroit. That is uh, a dimension that we are going to be talking about in the coming weeks here on the show. We're trying to uh, put some really interesting conversations together uh, about that development. But in the context of this discussion, it's also a really interesting point to note. Uh, There are migration patterns taking place that have to do with uh, the rise or the fall of urbanism in terms of popularity, in terms terms of appeal uh, for people who live here. Uh, Give us a call and tell us how you're thinking through all of this uh, here in the city of Detroit. 313-577-1019 is the number, as always, on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Let's start with Eric in Detroit. Eric, what's on your mind?
1: Hi, uh, my question is uh, related to um, my, particularly in Detroit. Um, you know, populations are, are declining in cities, yet rents aren't telling that same story. Uh, I'm just kind of wondering, can you answer um, uh, why that is sort of taking place? And and you mentioned commercial real estate as a possibility for for people to move in, but um, do you think some of those big projects that were Uh, underway pre-COVID, a lot of those developers don't want to lose out on those costs. Mm. So uh, yeah, can you just kind of explain how um, it's going to be less expensive um, when it doesn't seem to be the case uh, right now?
2: Mm. Really interesting
3: question, Eric. I'm glad you called uh, and asked that. David Kudler, what's the answer? Yeah, so actually um, on net, people are moving from uh, rural areas into cities, into urban areas, and they have been for most of the last uh, century or so. Um, so that's you know the the sort of if you will the frontier, the place where you go to make your 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 homestead used to be the West, and now it's uh, and, and now it's a city. Um, that's not true of every city, and so Detroit is one of the few cities that had actually been declining in population for some time, but the vast bulk of cities had been increasing mm-hmm. in population, and that's why. And so so that's partly why the rents are going up. The other factor in rents and prices going up is that many cities have been um, quite difficult to build in through a variety of building restrictions. This is particularly true of coastal cities like in California and Oregon and Washington and including my own city of, of uh, Boston and others along the East Coast. So you have very, you have very productive cities. Wages are high, lots of demand for workers and so on. And yet people are not moving to those cities as much because they can't afford to live there. The prices are just exorbitant. So what you're seeing is a couple of things. One is People moving to other cities that are much better in terms of the building environment. So Mm -hmm. think about Nashville or Houston or Phoenix or places like that where house prices are a quarter to a third of what they are in, say, uh, the San Francisco area. And the other thing that's happening is that people are moving to the outskirts of cities. So the population of Los Angeles is not growing, but the population of the areas just outside of Los Angeles is soaring and the same is true of San Francisco and other sorts of areas. And so you're so because of this lack of supply even with incredible demand for living there prices are going up, people are being pushed farther and farther out, they have longer commutes. Um and it's creating all these battles over who gets to live where. So it's it's both so so the cities are going to have to address the supply issue. It's really just terrible. Um and then uh o- overall what we hope that cities are still places where people can be safe so that people will really want to continue living in them. They are the most productive areas in the country. They're the most productive areas in the planet is in urban areas. So it'd be a shame if, if all of a sudden we decided we didn't like them.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Again, Eric, uh, really appreciate the call and the really provocative question. Let's go to Rebecca in Detroit. Rebecca, what's on your mind?
1: Hi. Hi, go ahead. Um, sorry, um, I wanted to talk about all of the different jobs that it takes to support stay at home workers and white collar workers. Um, I've heard this topic about changing cities and changing work in and after the pandemic. A lot of times when people aren't talking about those support roles and how if there's no support or incentive to be in those roles, the rest of these changes and the rest of these white collar workers can't really thrive or exist at all. Mm. Hmm. Uh,
2: really interesting observation, Rebecca. Uh, David Cutler, this gets to some of what we had begun talking about in terms of, I guess, the difference in the ways that urbanism versus uh, ex-urbanism, ex-urbanism uh, affects people, that, that money has a lot to do with it uh, and, and work, as Rebecca points out,
3: does as well. Rebecca is exactly right. You know, the the what COVID uh, was in many ways was a an enormous impact, particularly on women. Mm-hmm. So uh, women who were working and had kids in school, and you know that's how they were making things go by, and the elderly parents and so on, now found that um, the the they needed to be working from home, but the kids were at home, and they didn't trust putting the elderly parents in, the, in uh, a long-term care facility or anything like that. And all of a sudden, things came crashing down for women. Um, for the previous decade or two, things had come crashing down for men. You know, so for men who used to work in manufacturing jobs and in plants and so on, the life had become very difficult. And now uh, COVID did the same for women. And, and that's a shock from which we'll have to see how well we can recover as a society how well we can support the recovery as a society because um you can't have a situation where you know half the workforce is female but then you're saying oh I really need you to be doing three jobs at the same time you know caring for kids and caring for elderly people and, and doing full-time work and and so on so 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 <clears throat> how that affects the long-term status of women in particular but a, a, as as you're saying in general people who you um, uh, who who need help in order to be able to go to work is really uh, very important. And we, we, we weren't able to do that in the first phase of COVID. So hopefully we'll figure out better how to do it going forward. Hmm. Yeah. Uh,
2: let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. You there, Terry? Oh, I don't know that we have Terry. Uh, Terry, uh, call us back and uh, and we'll get you uh, we'll get you into we'll get you back into uh, the queue. Um, uh, David, I want to talk a little about the ways in which government and business can work together uh, mm-hmm. to, to try to deal with these challenges that we have in cities, especially in places like uh, like Detroit, where business had been playing such a role in in uh, growing our downtown in particular lots of other problems in other parts of the city uh, but but downtown really had come back on the on the strength of business uh, investment what's what's that partnership look like as we deal with the challenge of people maybe not being so interested in being in in big downtowns
3: yeah you it's it's an extremely interesting issue because um, businesses and cities have, sometimes adversarial relationships and sometimes um, uh, coordinated relationships. So the adversarial version is, look, you give me tax breaks or I'm going to go elsewhere. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. And the cooperative version is, look, we want to be here. You want us here. Let's figure out how we can all make this work. And it's super important that we do the cooperative version. And so, so everyone would like that. The difficulty comes in also that Cities, there's a, cities are under a lot of pressure to be activist, to redistribute money, to change policing, to uh, change education systems, to address COVID disparities, to address other longstanding disparities. If that can be done in a cooperative way, it could be great for everyone if that's done in a way which is, you know, go back to the old New York City formula, which is if you're rich, we're going to tax you. And, you know, we're just going to see how many people don't move out of New York City. Um, then it could be very bad. And then cities will lose a lot of their their, their high wage people, which is important to a great extent because of the tax, tax collection that comes from them. So it's going to be really important for city management to be collaborative and to and to say we need to address these issues we all of us need to so let's figure out how we're all going to do it as opposed to you know we're going to impose this and assume that everyone's going to go along with it
1: Hmm.
2: okay Uh, david cutler professor of applied economics at harvard university and co-author of the newly released book survival of the city living and thriving in an age of isolation it was really great to have you here for this conversation.
3: Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank us. you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Yeah.
2: Okay, uh, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to continue our WDET Summer Book Club conversations about the Constitution. This time we are going to look at the ways in which the Supreme Court justices have shaped the court and our understanding of the Constitution. Uh, itself uh, all of these conversations that we've had about the US constitution have been really wonderful i'm really looking forward though uh, to tomorrow's the court and its justices uh, are themselves a shadowy part of the way that constitutional law is interpreted and affects american lives tomorrow we're going to try to pull the curtains back just a little bit and talk about who some of those uh, justices are, some of those justices were, and the different ways uh, in which they have shaped our understanding of uh, the U.S. Constitution. So uh, come back tomorrow for that conversation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.